We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. We're going to turn to John chapter 13 this morning. And as you're getting started there, in John chapter 13, we're reading the first section of that chapter, verses 1 through 17. And what's going on at this point, as we've been following through Scripture from the beginning, from Genesis, as we've been following and tracking an overview of the life of Jesus, last week, if you remember, we saw that he rode into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey, on a young baby donkey, Uh, but there was this like celebration, parade, like you would give for the victorious king. And so he's entering into Jerusalem, and they think, this guy's going to conquer Rome for us. We're going to get the kingdom of Israel back, right? And what they don't know, but what Jesus does, is this would be the last week of Jesus' life here on earth. So he's going into that. And now, what we're skipping forward to a little bit now, is toward the end of that week. This would be Thursday night. And they're going into what's called the Passover meal. And Anthony is actually going to next week talk a lot about the Passover as we look more deeply into the Last Supper that Jesus institutes. But what we're going to look at this morning is something that happens at that same table, that same night before the meal is shared. And so just to kind of prep us a little bit what the Passover is, if we remember learning in the story before that when God's people, hundreds of years before Jesus, were enslaved in Egypt, and Moses came and said, hey, Pharaoh, let my people go. And he wouldn't do it. That God, God came to the rescue. God did a series of plagues on Egypt in order to show his power and to set his people free and to set them apart. And the last one that happened was just as Pharaoh, just as Egypt, had killed the firstborn male of every Israelite person. God was going to do the same thing to the firstborn of every Egyptian. But those who would trust in him, and listen, this was given to the Israelites, but it was spread around. So even the Egyptians who would trust in God and not Pharaoh had this way of escape, this way of salvation, this way of rescue, this way of death passing over their home, as if they would sacrifice a lamb and smear the blood over the doorpost to their entry to their home. They'd be fine. So every year after that, for like 1,500 years, every year after that, God's people would remember the Passover. They would remember how God had saved them and rescued them, and through a sacrifice, they had life by celebrating this Passover meal. And so Jesus intentionally is moving toward Jerusalem at this point during the Passover celebration. He's intentionally moving toward the epicenter of where their worship should have happened near the temple. And the epicenter of where Rome had full control over them at the same time. And during the most heightened season of their worship, where they would actually, maybe for the first time that year, turn and fix their eyes toward who God was and the people he made them to be. That's the context of this meal. So they're going in and they're sitting down and they get to the table. And in John chapter 13, it tells us this. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world 
to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now when it was time for supper, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel, and tied it around himself. Next he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you don't realize, but afterward you will understand. You will never wash my feet, Peter said. Jesus replied, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. One who has bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. This is why he said, not all of you are clean. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly, since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Father, we ask that we would be blessed by hearing your word this morning, but Lord, also as we go out from this place by doing what your word is instructing us. God, help us to have our, our minds, our hearts, our eyes, our ears, all of our senses turned and fixed toward you, that we would be able to hear what it is you are saying to us and see what you are showing us that we would be transformed by you. By the power of your spirit, the glory of the Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray. So when I grew up in Phoenix, I lived in a house that had a basement. There's not a lot of those in the Southwest, but we had one, which was great. There should be more of those in the Southwest because it was way cooler down in the basement. In our basement, we had a big great room with a pool table that just held all of our clothes when laundry was done. We had a bathroom. We had two bedrooms. And there were always three to four boys who lived downstairs in the basement, depending on who was sharing rooms at that time. That would fluctuate depending on who was also getting into fights in those rooms. Uh, and, but all the kids, all six of us, loved hanging out downstairs in the basement. That was our spot. So that bathroom got used a lot. That bathroom had something called a sump pump. You don't know what a sump pump is. I don't know all the mechanics of it either. But here's the gist. You are living underground in this basement, right? You are down underneath where the sewer lines need to connect, and so you needed a pump to get that waste to attach to the sewer line so it can go out to the city sewer. And because there were five boys and a girl, who was, by the way, just as messy and irresponsible as the rest of us boys, but for some reason when you hear five boys, you think, oh, that's a problem, right? And it was. Stuff got clogged in that toilet all the time. 
No joke, one time my stepbrother flushed a bag of chicken wing bones down the toilet. That's a whole other story in itself. Maybe I'll tell it one day. But you need to know, like, that sump pump was clogged all the time. So my dad would sometimes hire people to come out. And I thought, this is their job? What a terrible job to come out here and clean out someone else's waste, right? But because it happened a lot, and my dad had six kids in the house, they couldn't really afford to keep paying someone to come out every time this happened. So my dad ended up cleaning this stuff out a lot of times too. And I remember one time that there was a friend who was over, and this friend offered to come and help him clean out. You know what's in there, right? I'm not going to be explicit and say it. Like It's coming from our toilet, and he's getting in there and cleaning it out with my dad. I share that story because I think we can visualize how gross that is. Better than we can visualize what it looks like to clean someone's feet in the ancient Near Eastern world. But we have to understand this context. We've seen a lot of like our church today trying to replicate this, right? I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I have once. It was super weird when you go to someone's house and they offer to wash your feet. Like, no, get away from my feet. Why would you do that? That's so weird, right? I saw this, uh, this video clip that was going around in early 2020 of this big mega church where they invited a guy up to wash his feet on stage. And this was during a lot of like the BLM protests and all that. And so it was an old white man pastor and a young black man, part of the congregation. And they invited him up there and he didn't have him say anything the whole time and he just, he cleaned his feet. And I thought, what is that? What is that doing? Like, people could go home that day and pat themselves on the back and be like, we're part of a diverse church, right? And never talk to someone who looks different from them. But they saw it up on stage. They saw this weird thing that doesn't fit into our context where they're washing his feet. Like, he was just a prop on his stage, right? That's all that was. Because we don't do that. Because we don't need that. Because we have shoes, right? And sidewalks. So here's the context. The context is, back in the day, you don't have sidewalks. You do have these roads that the Romans built, but they're dirt roads. And who else is traveling on this road? Remember how Jesus just rode in to Jerusalem on a donkey? You got donkeys, you got cattle, you got camels. And just like you don't have a QT to pull off to the side to when you need to do your business, You don't have a place for these animals to pull off to the side of the road to do their business. So they went as they went, if you know what I'm saying. And you're walking on the same road. You might have these things called sandals. They don't even, they don't, aren't as nice as the sandals we wear today uh, that you kind of tie onto your feet to protect the bottoms of your feet. But what are you kicking up in the east? Back in the day with no sidewalks. Lots of dust and lots of poo all over your feet. And Jesus and his friends, they did a lot of traveling, right? They had some nasty feet. So what would happen during these days is you would get into someone's house and you would need your feet to be washed so you didn't track that all over the place. But again, this isn't like our world where you can just be like, hey, can I like get your hose real quick and hose off outside? It's not even like, let me just hurry up and get over into your restroom so I can clean myself off. Because there's no running water. So you needed somebody else from the house 
who knew where the water was, who kept these jars specifically for this, to go and get that, to bring it to you. And in order to make sure your feet were completely cleaned off, since you can't see the bottoms of them super well, someone else did that work for you. And it was such a gross job that actually the Jewish religious leaders would tell people, hey, don't make your Jewish servants wash people's feet. Like, make your Gentile servants do it. If you have servants that have come from somewhere else, they're not, they're not part of us, they're not Hebrews like we are. Make them wash feet. Don't do that to your Jewish brothers and sisters. Because it's that gross. It's that demeaning. It's that low of a position. And you got Jesus, who just a few days earlier was being heralded as a king and a rescuer and a savior as he entered into the great city of Jerusalem. Shouting, save us, you're the one. Waving palm branches around, laying their own cloaks down on the ground so that as his donkey traveled through, it wouldn't get dirty. And now Jesus himself is laying his garments aside so that he can get down and clean the dirty, nasty feet of his friends. So no wonder when he gets to Peter, Peter's like, whoa, hold on a second. No wonder Peter objects, right? He knows who Jesus claims to be. He at least knows, this is my teacher, my rabbi, my master. I'm supposed to serve him, and he's going to get down and clean my feet? No way. And Jesus says something really interesting there. He says, hey, if I don't clean you, you have no part with me. If I don't clean you, you have no part with me. There's two responses Peter has here that I think a lot of times we fall into either one or the other, or sometimes we fluctuate between both. The first one is Peter's like, you can't come and clean my feet. How could you do this? I don't know what it is. The last two weeks, I keep getting something in my throat. <clears throat> we'll cut that part out of the recording. And then I'll just say something here and make it sound like I'm really emotional instead. <clears throat> that response of, <clears throat> you, can't, you can't wash my feet. This can't happen. It sounds like Peter's got a good response. <clears throat> one of humility, one of, no, 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 I need to be serving you. But I think if we examine it closely, we would actually find that there's a hint of pride going on inside of Peter's heart. When we recognize our sin, do we go to Jesus right away and say, I need you to wash me? Or do we go, hey, no, 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 I got this. Let me take care of this, Jesus. This thing that I've done, this thing that I've thought, this thing that I persist in, it's too dirty for you. I don't even want to talk to you about it. Let me take care of it. And when I've got that worked out, when I've got it figured out, well, then we can 
We can sit down together. There's a pride there. There's an arrogance that you somehow can wash yourself. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. So then his next response then is like, it also sounds fitting, like, all right, then, well, if I need to be washed by you to, to be in your presence, then wash my whole body. Let's go. And Jesus is like, all right, slow down, buddy. I, I love this response. He literally says, dude, if you take a bath this morning, you don't need me to wash you again. You just walk through some dirt. Just let me wash your feet. Like, it's a very practical response. But there's also something deeper going on behind those words, too. And I think that's the other thing we, we hop to, the other extreme of coming to Jesus with our dirt, with our filth, is, I don't know if you were like me growing up around the church, like in, in the 90s and early 2000s, I don't know if this still happens, because I've been around this church for so long and we don't do it, uh, but there was always this like, hey, rededicate your life to Jesus, right? Come back to the altar, do an altar call again, which is kind of like the Catholic faith. Like, if you've sinned, go back to the priest every single week and confess your sins so that you can be cleaned again. It's like you have to re-atone for your failures every single week. And Jesus is going, no, I've already washed you. You're already clean. You just got your feet a little dirty. That's our sin, right? We've already been made whole and new and clean if we're in Jesus. But... Every now and then, we still go back to our filth. Jesus goes, come back over here. Sit down. He gets down. He cleans it for us. But we have these, these two extremes we jump through. Of like, I can't go to Jesus with this. Or, Jesus, I, I, I need you to just like completely make me new again. i got to rededicate my life. And he goes, no, no, you're already mine. You're already with me. You already have part with me. And that's what he reassures Peter with. Right? Doesn't he say that? You are clean. But not everyone. Which is one of the most fascinating parts to me about this whole story. That there are 12 disciples sitting there who Jesus washes the feet of. Not 11. One of those men sitting there, Jesus already knows, is going to betray him. He already knows what Judas is up to. He knows that the enemy has already infiltrated his heart, his mind. It's already whispered those lies over to him and, and brought him over. That he is going to be used as a puppet in this attack against Jesus. One who's walked with him for three years, who has been loved by him, who has seen him do miracles, right? Who was part of those miracles? We're told over and over again, Jesus would send his disciples out to go feed people, pray for people, and cast demons out. And Judas was part of that. That's like, let that be a warning, right? Because you could be part of the community of God. You could be part of the church. You could even be doing these really good things. But Judas' heart was not for Jesus. Jesus knows this. Jesus knows what time it is. He knows what's about to happen. And he purposely and intentionally does not dismiss Judas yet. 
We'll hear it next week. He literally at one point says to him, hey, go and do what you plan to do. He dismisses him to go betray him. But Jesus waits. He allows him to sit there and he washes the feet of Judas before he goes out to betray him. We have a lot of different people in our lives who, like, it's really hard to say something nice about, right? It's really hard to serve them and to do something nice for them. Can you imagine, like, knowing somebody who is about to stab you in the back? Somebody who is literally about to hand you over to be murdered. You know it, and you sit down, and you look them in the eye, and do the most humiliating, humbling, lowly servant thing for them. And why? Because the scripture says, because Jesus loved them to the very end. He loved them to the very end. Judas's betrayal is what separated him from Jesus. But it wasn't a lack of Jesus pursuing him and loving him to the very last opportunity. Now, we don't have to wash people's feet today. So what do we do when we hear a story like this, right? Because Jesus doesn't just end it and go, all right, reflect on what I've done for you. He actually ends it and says, reflect on what I've done for you and now do the same for one another. Which is why we have a lot of those weird circumstances where people are trying to wash each other's feet today. Well, the Bible says it. Jesus said, wash each other's feet now. Yes, he was talking to his disciples who needed their feet washed. What is the modern day feet washing? Just consider that for a second. What is the thing that, like, nobody really wants to do for one another, but people need God? People would really be blessed by Just one, one thought that comes to my mind right now is, uh, like, nurses or people in healthcare who are changing out bedpans or wiping somebody because they can't do it for themselves. Or bathing them. Like modern day foot washing. But the context is not just somebody who can't do it for themselves. It's somebody who doesn't want to do it. Right? It's, it's the lowest job because people don't even want to touch their own dirty feet. It's doing it for someone who is your enemy. What are those small ways that seem insignificant to the world around you, to the world that's watching you. You're not going to get pats on the back for it, but it's going to go a long way to serve someone and show them the love of Jesus. Because they had to get their feet washed in order to go to the table for the meal. How are we serving and caring for the world in a way where we're inviting them to the table? You're ready to come to the table now and sit with Jesus. Because you've seen the love. Just consider today. That's, that's the goal. Consider, think, and pray and ask the Lord, like, how do I wash someone's feet this week? How can I do that? Don't consider how that's going to look to other people. Earlier this week, I had three, three little quick stories I want to share with you and we'll wrap it up. Three different people who, in different ways, shared that they were looking for a life of significance. 
I, first, I was sick in bed one day, and so I watched this movie called The Tomorrow War with Chris Pratt. It's an okay movie. But in it, the kind of like story behind this story, the underlying theme of what's going on with the main character that kind of drove the whole storyline, the whole plot, is that he felt like he was insignificant. He felt like, I know I'm destined to do something great with my life, though. I know there's something bigger i got to be doing. And a couple days later, I was sitting in our office in Cultivate, talking with a young man who was sharing with me just how frustrated he is with God right now because he knows God needs him to do something great. Those are his words. And yet God hasn't shown him what that great thing is yet. And I said, well, what if God just wants you to, like, work, to love your neighbor, to experience him? Is that enough for you? And I appreciate his honesty. He said, no. I'd be really disappointed in that. And then I left from that meeting, and I sat in a room full of pastors here in the West Valley, and we sat down and we shared, like, what are our highlights of this year and what have been the really hard things. And a lot of the really hard things shared, like, caveat, Yes, there were things that like are out of our control, like people's health. Like, it's just been a tough year to pastor because of like climate, cultural things, right? But a lot of, I would say, eighty percent of the hurts that are, were being spoken there were out of somebody having an expectation that was missed, somebody's failed dreams and visions and desires for what their church would look like. Things that Jesus didn't necessarily ever promise. But it was a vision, a hope that, as an individual, I had for something great. I thought, this is no different than that conversation I just had. I talked with one of those pastors afterward, and he was being just as honest with me, too. He was sharing just how hard it's been. And it was all around, like, this is not, this this isn't as big as I thought it was going to be. It doesn't look as grand as I thought it was going to be. And sometimes we, we go to Jesus with that stuff and we're like, God, what is, what's going on with my life? Don't you have something more for me? Like, I, I got to, in that moment, be someone who got to minister to those people, but I've also been those people. Right? God, don't you have something bigger? This is what his disciples would say, too. Jesus, when you do go in and you take over Rome and you take the kingdom back, can we sit at your right and left hand? Can we also be part of that greatness? And he goes, you have no idea what you're asking. And the thing is, they also had no idea really who they were asking it from. The guy who was about to get down and wash their feet. Like, do you know when you say, like, I just, I'm so frustrated because... I feel like God has something bigger for me, and here I am doing this. Do you know you're talking to the God who stepped out of heaven, out of his kingdom over the whole universe, and made himself a small, helpless baby who needed to be wiped himself? You're talking to the guy who lived in obscurity for about 30 years as a homeless man. He says the Son of Man had no place to rest his head. You're talking to the guy who rode in his great victorious parade welcoming in the last week of his life was sitting on the baby donkey. You're talking to the guy who gets down and gets dirty and cleans up our filth. 
What if what God has for you is to actually humble yourself? To not be grand and big and recognized, but to take on the form of a servant. Step into other people's filth, even at cost to yourself. Show them the loving hands of Jesus who can clean that mess for them. And invite them to the table. What if it's just to do your work well? So your boss is loved by how good of a worker you are. Your customers are loved by the experience you give. Love your, your family and your neighbors, your church. Enjoy the presence of God. Is that enough? Because I think what you'll find is that is a fully satisfying life. And yes, there's hardships along the way, and there's getting your feet dirty sometimes, but sitting in the presence of Jesus at the table the most satisfying thing you can ever experience. So I'm going to pray. We're going to go to the table. That's what Jesus did next with his disciples. After he washed their feet, he said, go and do the same for one another. Then they sat down and they had a meal. This was the last meal Jesus would have with them before he was killed. Before Judas went out and betrayed him. When they broke the bread, he said, I want you to remember my body broken for you. And when they took the cup, he said, remember my blood poured out for you. Because what I have done is I, the king of all things, have become the servant to all so that you can have life. So when we go to the table, we remember those words Jesus said right before that, go and do the same. We actually have an identity of servants because our king has served us. Amen? 